KWOD Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, going live today, and we are here with Donald Jocks. He is uh, Vice President of Moon Society in Phoenix, and he also is a multitude of other things. He's uh, the owner of Wisp Kids International, a website, website, and a website, what is it? There's multiple projects of boring technologies for the colonization of space is what he's into. He also is the owner of WeaversOfDreams.com, which is an author tools website. He serves as vice president. I serves as president. Sorry. There's <laughs> the president of AZ Publishing Services, a book publishing firm, and is the author of three books. Welcome, Don. Good morning. Good to be here. Now, we're talking today about To the Moon for America. And the idea is an overview of how to fund, train, and deliver a self perpetuating settlement to the moon. That's by citizens, assuming they're citizens, who are willing to make the one way trip. Thank you. The, the, word, the first thing that we need to understand is we're talking settlement. We're not talking the traditional view of most of the science community or NASA or the government. We're going to send up uh, a team or we're going to send up a or we're going to create a base. And then we're going to go back and visit that base. What I'm actually proposing is a full-scale settlement with very different goals, very different economic processes, and very different development processes. In looking at history, which is where um, I've drawn a lot of my concepts and principles from, uh, the biggest example I like to use is the movement west precipitated by a government land giveaway in the late 1800s, where basically if you could get to the land and stake it out, the land was yours. This precipitated a huge land rush over a period of several months. and the government understood at the time that it would be a huge risk. People's greed would trigger a lot of conflict. There would be problems. But interestingly enough, uh, it actually worked despite the conflicts, despite the risks, despite the active accidents, despite the many things that happened that, that could have or should have in today's society shut the whole project down. But, you know, being an astronaut back in the 60s and 70s was a matter of of, they understood that they were taking a risk. I mean, going to space was being a hero. uh, Being being an astronaut was was like being a hero because they were taking a risk. Well, yes and no. Let's look at this. The the aspect of being a hero is doing so, I, a hero in everyday life is very different than being a national hero. In being a hero in everyday life, somebody does something unexpected, unusual that people would not normally do in the course of our daily lives. Somebody jumps into a burning car and pull out somebody who's burning to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who can't swim jumps into a pool and pulls out a drowning victim. These are things that these are what we see as everyday heroes. When we talk about people such as astronauts, we're talking about a completely different caliber of people. These are people who have raised themselves to take risks. These are people who take risks because they choose to, because they get a high out of it in most cases. The the rush of jumping out of a, a perfectly good airplane at 2,000 feet and opening your parachute at barely 15, you know, 100,000 to 1,500 feet up is dangerous to say the least hmm. you know you you don't necessarily have time to open your secondary chute um you're falling so fast astronauts on the other hand are standing on top of of the equivalent of 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 a small nuclear weapon i mean this thing blows off and it, it they've coined the terms lighting the candle you know you're, you're lighting this huge bomb and riding this rocket up 
and this thing is multi-stories tall, full of fuel. Uh, if it blows, you'd never know it. So what you're, what you're saying here is that being an astronaut is, is being an adrenaline junkie. To a certain degree, yes. And that's like the ultimate adrenaline junkie, if you really think about it. Well, actually, <laughs> well, from our perspective, I, I would agree with you, but that I'd also add another element here. And there's an aspect to this that is missing and, it, and is the core of what I'm talking about today. When we look at the astronauts, they enjoy the framework in which they have to offer, to, to work with. And that is, is you've got this research framework that says, this is the level of risk we're going to allow you to have. Mm -hmm. It is more risk than we ourselves with straight-laced minds and um, who know these risks and know we could die. We aren't going to take this risk, but if you want to take it, we'll help you take and we'll do everything we can to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. But yes, you could die in an instant. An aircraft goes off the runway, gets up to flight in a Mach 2, Mach 4 flight plan, and all of a sudden it starts shaking out. Next thing you know, you've got no airplane around you. You're dead. Parachute or not, you're dead. Now, wind do, resistance alone. Do you think that it was safer or that it's become safer to be an astronaut compared to back when they started the program when, and, you know, didn't know maybe some of the factors that... They know now. I think the reality today is is that there are more risk to astronauts today than there were in the early days. Oh wow! Um, okay. And part of that is simply because we understand it better. We understand the forces of gravity. We understand the forces of thrust and vectoring and 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 gravity and shear and and things that they didn't understand back in the early days of Mercury and Apollo. Uh, we know so much more, but even in knowing so much more, we also realize how much little we know. It's that age-old question. Every answer precipitates more questions. Hmm. Um, so we were more arrogant maybe back when we first started thinking that, that oh, yeah, we know it all. We're going to go ahead and light this candle and go. Ignorance <laughs> is bliss, as it were. Sure. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, and it's it's that point that we come back to. There There is a heady rush that comes from the when you talk to the people of of the early Apollo era or the Mercury or or the Gemini era, where these people were going into the unknown. Orbital space on Earth has become a known factor to a certain degree. In the same vein that when you climb onto an airplane today to fly across the country, it's a known risk. Yes, the plane could crash. But the likelihood of that plane crashing is almost slim to none. Very, very, very small. And so if you look at the safety record of the shuttle and, and the Apollo craft, you you look at the statistics, even on the Soyuz, even with the recent uh, crash of their progress ship, you find that the safety record of these craft is even better than airlines. The potential of human death on, on these kind of craft is is very, very small. The effort that the scientists take to protect the passengers and crew is huge. It's a monumental effort that they take. But here's the problem. Even so, that's what it takes to get up there. That's the effort. That's what it takes. But there's a big difference here, and that is, is the difference between mission objectives and survival. To bring okay. us around to the topic, we're looking at settlement. And settlement is not about mission objectives. Because in a settlement environment, your objectives change from moment to moment. Right. Well, like, for instance, with Apollo 13, that where they their objective obviously was go to go around the moon, but because of issues that happened while they were up there, the objective was get these people home. Right. And, and that changed so rapidly. We have the luxury now of having a lot of knowledge and a lot of information about the very real risks that go from getting from the surface of the Earth to the surface of the Moon. Those, most of those are known factors. We can calculate them with math. We can demonstrate them to a large degree in our scientific laboratories. And we can show the cause and effect of getting from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. But settlement 
but but all that lab experience, all that knowledge, all that understanding ends at the point when you put real live settlers on the surface of the moon as opposed to astronauts going there with a mission objective. When you look at the mission objectives where you're going to send somebody someplace and you're going to bring them home, which is the current mandate, Mm -hmm. everybody always comes home. Uh, We see this in so many places. You you, you see it in, um, in, in military movies. We don't leave men behind. Right. Okay, we see this in yeah we see this in in the expectation of the astronautic program and that we always bring them home. Okay, astronauts go up, they come back. Ships go up, they come back. Everything goes up, must come down. That's the assumption. But when we're talking a settlement scenario, this is a completely different scenario. Right. The ships, the boosters, everything has to be designed differently than you would if you were going to send them and bring them back. First of all, you're, you're in an initial look at this, your fuel expense is almost cut in half. Not quite, because you've got some different issues. But it's almost cut in half. But even so, when you cut down all that fuel, now you've got to carry additional supplies. Mm-hmm. Right. So your weight goes back up. And so there's all sorts of trade-offs that you go to. Some of the things that we look at with regard to settlement is is it's not practical to send a single tin can unit like we've put up with the space station and have that be a settlement. It just flat doesn't work. You've well, got to be able to grow that facility and make it bigger, and you just can't do that with our research. Well, before today. we get over there, uh, if I could ask that Americans in general have not been in this frame of mind uh, for a very long time. Uh, you see that as an issue because, again, like you said, we have been in a mentality, in a mindset of uh, go, what goes up must come down. Everything that goes, everybody that goes up, everybody comes home safely. Right. So we haven't been in a settlement, uh, you know, to the west or bust stage in a very long time. Well, that's, if we look back at the Apollo program and you read the articles and the stories about the Apollo astronauts and, and in general the Apollo program, there were two, you can find two distinct points of view. From the government and NASA, the point of view was these are explorers going out and coming back, much like um, the explorers who mapped the American West right. and, and came back with their report five years later. But then you look at the articles and the news stories of um, the press and you look at the responses of people that are available in the archives. It was a very different perspective. The people of the Apollo era, the public, looked at this as an opening of the frontier there was an undercurrent of assumption that we were going to stay, even though the president dictated that we would bring these men back. The American public assumed we were going to stay. I'd have to agree with that because um, I have a teenage son who assumed that we already had a base on the moon Mm -hmm. because why wouldn't we? And you know that very term base is important to understand because a base is a definition. Here's the thing. When we establish a military base in another country, we don't grow that base. That base has a very finite size. It has a very specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And it has a specific number of people. And it doesn't grow beyond a certain size, ever. It's never intended to. And that definition of a base is something that is generally small. It's big enough to, to perform its mission objective. And that's it and you resupply it from your home. A settlement is a very different animal entirely. We're talking sending out a group of people to the middle of the desert, they build a town, and then that town grows and supports itself. And this is a very different well, much, concept. Much like the Old West was, where the, people exactly. would go to California or even uh-huh. Arizona. Mining towns are Mining a good towns, example. They would grow. And and they grew because people or they followed. would die when the mining wasn't there wasn't anything to mine. Exactly. 
Um, mission objectives against survival. Survival, you're going to do or die. You're going to make it bigger and you're going to grow. A base, you're going to achieve mission objectives. And this requires you to carry a lot of stuff with you that you don't really need. In survival mode, you carry the base minimum that you need to survive and grow, which means you're almost like planting a seed, which means you plan on using resources that are already there. Now, we know there are certain resources on the moon that can contribute to a settlement, but the challenge is is, uh, being able to use those resources when we get there. If we look at the Old West, as you pointed out before, the settlers had the benefit of an atmosphere, water, trees, grass, fruit, all sorts of things that were well, growing in the environment. they would environment. make sure that wherever they settled, there was water supply close by. We don't have a way to guarantee that right. on the on the that's, moon or even on Mars. That's where this is different. Even with the suspicion, uh, the growing suspicion that there's salt water flowing on Mars during different parts of the year, we still cannot confirm where it is now, where it was, where it's going to, and so forth. So we don't have the luxury of this idea of being able to see signs that make sense to us as trackers to locate these good locations. Also on the moon, we're not certain whether or not the water the water ice is even any good to use there. True. Uh, and and that creates a big question mark. Well, and and here knows. we go back to and here we go back to another aspect of both the Apollo and the Gemini era, and of those homesteaders and settlers that went out west. And that is, there's a sense of hope that when you get there, you will make lemonade out of whatever you find, <laughs> essentially. And so now we get into this this idea of if you're handed a lemon, you exactly. make lemonade, right? So now we get into the second phase of, the, of of this whole mind shift, and that is going from homesteading risk versus redundant safety. Um, when you get into a homesteading situation, you're looking at something where you're going to take invention and innovation and direct problem resolution where you're going to solve the problems you're faced with as opposed to the static um, uh, foregone conclusions of scientists trying to solve problems that they're anticipating and inevitably, as we found in Apollo, mm-hmm. things yeah, happen exactly. that can cascade into challenges that they have no immediate solution for, and you've got to come up with something. I remember in uh, Apollo 13 where they had the, you know, the, they only have limited pieces Research, that they could yeah. use, uh-huh. and with those pieces they had to make something. And it was a, a, a an incredible success story, how they cobble together those pieces and how they use the resources that they have. And one of the things that, that if you'll remember, that they they rationed the resources that they have Mm -hmm. in order to make it last, forcing themselves into inactivity to sleep as much as possible, to sit and be as inactive as possible to stretch those those resources as far as they can. Right, they have Um, a problem with, with air supply. Exactly. And so... We have these issues. Now, a homestead, one of the things that people are struggling with today, setting aside the risk. The risk is only part of the discussion. The second thing is, is why should we go in the first place? Now, people come up with, well, because it's there. Okay, that's a wonderful idea, and that's great for our risk takers. (laughs) We've already... We've already been there. Yeah, exactly. Been there, done that. Why should we go back? Well, there is another reason, and that is, is that... We are an exploratory species. We are curious. We are risk takers. And that is our nature. As we fill up this globe, even in the minimal way that we're doing it, we're we're impacting this globe in ways that's going to kill us in the long run hmm. and maybe even the short run. And that, that presents risks in and of itself. Right. Um, but there is something that happens to a society when you regain or recapture that frontier spirit, which is is the way we can describe the public's view during the Gemini and Apollo era. There was this sense of opening the frontier. There was this hope that we could go and be part of this. It's not about going and seeing something as a tourist. It's about going and moving outward and expanding outward and going to someplace new and staying there. As a, as a stepping stone to going to somewhere new. Beyond that, right. it's always about the discovery of something new. If we can't do that, no matter how good our robotics are, no matter how good our telescopes are, we just, it's not the same. 
no. that that frontier exploration does not exist. That awe of discovering something new, mm-hmm. the behavior of something different, yeah, is so. not there with our robots and our things. And those are those are things that the public sees. Scientists can look at this and explore through their telescopes and the safety of their of their laboratories and and mock-ups and simulations and draw great conclusions and and do the math and do these things and come up with all of this stuff that creates the framework for us to work. But if we do not actually move beyond the earth, we cannot put that into place. Right. We cannot use it for any long-term benefit because it involves being out beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Taking risks. Taking the risks. Well, here's a question. We have a lot of groups now that want to go to Mars rather than the moon. Um, because we haven't been there. Simply put, that's the only reason they want to go to Mars as opposed to the moon. But they're forgetting about the footsteps. They need to take. You need to actually settle one area before you can move on. You can't in in America, for instance. You had to settle the Midwest before you could before you could hit California and the ocean. Well, there there is a principle that government tends to follow when they choose to, and that's called eminent domain. Now, eminent domain usually means that they can take a property when they want to. And to a certain degree, government has an arrogance that is far and away beyond any risk taker in public life would ever even attempt. And that is the government decides they want a piece of property. They're going to go after it. And the government is a... Well, that's that's also (laughs) the same type of an arrogance. Uh But here's the thing. When you look at government, government says, we've been to the moon, we own the moon, we can take the moon anytime we want. We want to take something new. Mm-hmm. And so the government, NASA, the scientists, that whole uh, group of people are saying, we've been to the moon, we own the moon, we can go back anytime we want, now we need to go somewhere new without thinking about the cost, right. without considering what does it mean to our society and will it benefit our society. And that's, you know, you were talking earlier in the discussion about how do we get it around to where Americans can be involved. And this has to do with the aspect of certain factors that go into this whole concept of economics, Mm -hmm. economic growth, and the the continuing development of our species. Economic growth comes from establishing new businesses, not growing old businesses. An average, a good business that sees a, a, a five to fifteen percent annual growth rate is a great business. You're making hand, money hand over fist. That would be nice. It would be be nice for any business. But in in as as we've seen in the history of economics, if businesses go beyond that point and they get into double uh, double digit growth, there are huge problems. Hmm. The business well, begins yeah. having problems meeting the, 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 the demand has, for their business. It has gone beyond their capability of handling. Exactly. So they wind up losing customers or losing exactly. the quality of the product goes down. The quali- and usually it's the quality of the product that drops, yeah. and so the business ends up beginning to, to, to fall backwards. Right. And your growth drops down into single digits and sometimes down to a point where you end up in deficits. Um, also, another principle is, is that if you have growth that is too slow – that it cannot be sustained, the business will simply dry up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we look at the structure, I think we're seeing that a lot now. We are very much a lot within our within our society today. Businesses are struggling, but and the overall economic growth is is anemic at best. I mean, uh, the news said the other day that we had zero job growth, but I'm not looking at that as a function of economic growth because economic growth isn't just job growth. Economic growth is, is our people, is money changing hands? Are products being exchanged? Are people buying things and selling things? And the answer is yes, they are. Is there a, a huge growth? No. But I wonder if what's happening here is, is that we've reached a point of stagnation in our economy. Mm-hmm. The ability for us, because of our numbers, to create enough new businesses 
with the technology, with the environments that we have here at our disposal on Earth are not going to precipitate any huge growth in our economics. Not no, going to happen uh, until we get across the next threshold, which is space. Right. And and the thing is, as like I said, uh, that big corporations, there's only so far they can raise their bottom line. Exactly. Uh, before, you know, they implode. Well, here's an interesting thing to think about. When you when you go back in history and you look at the economics and you go backwards in time, there there is a point where you begin to see a shift in the way people market. When we look at the marketing today, everything is about savings. How much money are you saving? If you do this program and you apply the rebate, your total sales is such and such. Okay? How many times do you see anybody talking about value? When was the last time you saw a commercial that talked about what is the value you're getting? Well, that's not really marketing. It isn't today, but go back 50 years, and most of the commercials were about value. If you go back a little, it gives you value. It gives you value because it serves you, because it does this, it does that, it does this. It saves you money from going to laundromat. Right. Here's another point. If you go back further, go back another 50 years, okay, you go back to a point of cost, okay? My... Product A over here costs $20. Product B over here costs 18 does the same thing. This is better value because it costs less. Okay? Before, if you go back another 50 years, you're looking at the quality. Who has the better quality? Is it regardless of the price? Well, I think 50 years is a bit... You're talking... You're already past the industrial age, James. Yes. <laughs> and, and I meant to be. Truly, I meant to be. Meant to be. Okay. When you look at the difference between... Today and a hundred years ago, you're looking at a difference between the perception of craftsmanship as opposed to value. Well, that then they did everything by hand. I mean, they quite a few products were well. Most products by were hand. produced by hand, right. and the difference is you had it. craftsmen who could produce them very well. You had good eyes, you had good feel, you had a sense of of appreciation for the work. But these all go into what I'm talking about. When you have a level of craftsmanship and you have a level of pride in what is being done, you're going to have the potential for a far greater business growth than you will if you're focused on saving your customer money. Because now you have to reduce your price, you have to reduce your quality, you've got to reduce it so that you're doing better than the other guy next to you who's producing the same exact product, but he's doing it just slightly differently to shave costs. Business is about making money. It's not about saving money. It never was. So how do we apply this to space? Well, here's what I'm suggesting. When the United States pushed to expand its borders or to expand its people into the West, there was an explosion of economic development and progress, the railroads, the economics of new towns growing up, new consumers buying new products. The growth was phenomenal. But we've seen a gradual slowing of that growth as people have moved into the cities, gotten away from the farms, gotten away from things like uh, craftsmanship and and product value, and moved into this mass production to get cheaper products that work just as good as the other guys, but you can buy it cheaper here, this consumeritis, as I call it. So now we have this. Well, how does space and, and homesteading the moon give us a leg up to change things? Well, there you go. the first thing is, is that homesteading the moon first as an adjunct and a foundation to homesteading Mars and Mars as a foundation to homesteading further out creates a literal rolling frontier. Hmm. In the United States, it's the only place I know of where we had this actually happen. You started with the 13 colonies, and as those colonies began to expand westward, the economy and the businesses began to literally explode like never seen before. The open-mindedness, the arrogance that we carry with us as Americans that we can do that because we are better, 
the aspect of being able to do it faster, better, cheaper is kind of cool. But more importantly, Americans do it. We get the job done. And that is the frontier spirit. Yeah. We get the job done. We get the job done. We get out there. We go these places. And and that is not to say that other countries don't. I mean, look at Ariane and what they do. I mean, you've got the Russians and Soyuz. You've got the uh, Europeans and Ariane. Uh, even the Indians have their own system. And they're all doing very well at their space programs. That sounds awesome. We're going to take a short break here. And... This is KWOD Radio. This is Patty Holstrand. And just let you know that your guest call-in number is 714-242-5145. And after the break, which will be about one minute, we will uh, get to questions and comments. Thank you, and I'll be right back. How are we doing? Good. When I come back, I'm going to do it. Hey, Wild Radio. This is Patty Holstrand. This program is being uh, subsidized and uh, we're paid for by LunarSettlement.com. That's www.LunarSettlement.com. Also by Manuscript2ebook.com. That's Manuscript, the number two, ebook.com. Manuscript to ebook. Take control. And enjoy the freedom to make your book available in dozens of online retail outlets. Get your ebook conversions and print PDF files for sales now. Take control of your career. Take make extra income. Be the author you always wanted to be. In control of your future. Managerdebook.com. We're on live today with. Donald Jock and he's getting into his his usual spiel about how we need to be on the moon and beyond. Overview of how to fund, train, and deliver a self-perpetuating settlement to the moon sat by citizens who are willing to make the one-way trip. Don, we were talking about uh, historically some things that why Americans, specifically Americans, have the mentality of going to the moon or going anywhere else, actually, and uh, making it their own. Americans have an arrogance about us. We are, um, for for a myriad of reasons, I'm sure, 
have an arrogance that we can do that. Period. There, there's, there's no doubt. There's no question. There's no um, discussion about whether it's right for us to do this or not. We just Americans have this assumption that it is our, to a certain degree, our manifest destiny to mm-hmm. do things. Um, we haven't heard that in a while, have we? Manifest <laughs> destiny. Manifest <laughs> destiny, and, and and Americans have the arrogance to to assume it's it belongs to us, mm-hmm. and it's it's one of the things that makes us uniquely who we are uh, on the planet. Um, I, I mentioned before the break that you know you have the, the Russians and and the Indians, and now China as well as as the Europeans all have their own space programs, and mm-hmm. they've taken great pains to develop these uh, on a very uh, staid and and solid scientific and, and, and planned economic foundation, um, the Russian program equally is as long and storied history as, as our own NASA. The Chinese, a very new upstart, but again, based on solid, good principles. None of these take the arrogance of the American program hmm. to bear. Well, the Russians used to be like pretty much Todd Dog, and then we, we came into the mix and took well, the, the Apollo position. Yeah, the Apollo program really rushed far and away, headlong, into the into the, into the the mix. Yeah, yeah but the, the Russians, again, worked from uh, uh, not necessarily a slow approach, but rather from a tried-and-true approach make it work, make it dependable, and then move to the next step. They did take a lot of risks. They pushed forward very yeah. very rapidly. But even so, they they didn't do it from a standpoint of arrogance, as I think the Americans tried to do. Well, you know, it surprised me is that here I thought the Russians were kind of out of the, out of the running <laughs> when technically they're actually shooting more things into space than we are. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Um, they're launching, I think our shuttle launched four, five a year if we were lucky, if, we're lucky. if we got that high. It may have been closer to two or three a year. Uh, the Russians have been launching support missions to the ISS at, at multiples per year for pretty much the life of the station. I mean, we're talking the stations, the shuttle program's been ongoing for 30 years. And yet we've we've launched 130, give or take a few ships. Yeah. Out of 30 years, that's what uh, 13, 12. That's what four a year on average. Mm. Okay. The okay. Russians have been doing at least I I I want to say at um, at least one or yeah, two a month. <laughs> I want to say at least one or two a month. That's, I absolutely. Uh, that's what you tell me before, yeah, or, or what I've read. After you showed me, yeah, I think that that's why it was just shocking to me the kind of money that they're that they're using. But we're talking about um, other countries or you know paying them to really to put payloads up, right? And it just it was stunning to me how many that they were doing, uh-huh. uh, far and away more than any other country. Uh huh. They have. They probably have. You know, even with the loss of this recent progress ship, the Russians have demonstrated um, a far greater frequency of launch right. than I think anybody else. Right. Uh, and, and that's why it surprised me. Yeah, and, and, and in reality, way. when when you compare the ships. The Russian Soyuz and Progress ships have not really changed in large part since um, the late portion of the early space race. I mean, if you go back to Apollo, the Apollo Soyuz, I mean, we're talking 40 years ago when the Apollo Soyuz docked. Those ships are not very different than the Soyuz that they launch now. I mean, they have had advances and they've had improvements, but this is a ship that is 40 years old, is still in good shape, is still in use, and has become literally the workhorse of uh, space development. Well, here's a question I have, and I know it's been discussed before, but uh, one, for purposes of the fact that I'm sure everybody knows, um, 
Why are we getting out of this, out of the space shuttle at this juncture? That's a that's a that's a multifaceted answer to a question. <laughs> I mean, it's the question is so broad. The, the, the bottom line is that the United States government has decided that first, the space shuttle program is unsustainable economically. The money's no. just not there to keep it going. No, I understand that part. And that's due in part to many decisions that they've made that continually require expendability within the program. For example, the shuttle itself was originally designed to carry its external fuel tank into orbit mm-hmm. all the way up. All the way, it could, have, it could have taken the expendable tank all the way to the space station. Mm-hmm. And there have been many uh, scientists and, and groups over the years who have suggested using those tanks cleaning them out and using them as habitation volumes. They are pressure vessels. They're perfectly capable of, of having construction work done on them in orbit, but NASA hasn't gotten to the point of doing large-scale construction in orbit, so they chose not to put these mm-hmm. units in orbit. If you think we had 135 yeah. launches, how much space could that have been put up there, living space, could we have put into orbit in 135 launches? That's a lot of canisters yeah, that could I'm have been I'm quite sure there. they could have figured it out. Oh, absolutely. They could have if they had tried. And see, here's the difference. This 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 actually exemplifies the difference in the two point of views that I've been talking about so far. In NASA, it's about mission objectives. If the mission objectives don't include carrying the external tank for use into orbit, then they throw it away. Yeah. And this is the classic resource problem that NASA and all government organizations suffer from. If I don't know what to do with it when I get there, I'm going to throw it away before I get there. And I think that's an American mentality uh, for the last couple of decades here. Mm-hmm. Um, and why, you know, overall we're economic state that we're in now, which gets us into our last... Exactly. And, and in homesteading, in a good economic model of any business, you use everything you possibly can. Mm-hmm. If you carry it, if you start out with a tank, two solid rocket boosters, and your shuttle, you need to carry as much as possible up into orbit, and then see what you're going to do with it when you get there. Kind of like a what I uh, lack of better it's a cookie dough. It says you roll it out, you use the dough you can with the you cut out your cutters, cookies. Yeah. But you've got all this stuff left over. You pull it all together. You roll it out again. again, And you make more cookies. You make more cookies. And you keep doing that until you have absolutely... Until you got one cookie left. And one one little ball. You mash it down. you got your last cookie. Yeah. you got a circle. Exactly. Messy one. And the same is true as we look at homesteading. The idea of homesteading is not so much that we look at the rocketry systems that we have and say, how can we convert these to something else Mm -hmm. and remake it? The idea is, is is you look at it and say, okay, and I'll, I'll give you a scenario here of a suggested first launch. Okay. All right. We take, say, say let's take the new up and comers. Okay. We you take say, a space launch, SpaceX vehicle. Okay. All right. You take their Dragon ship, which is, which actually, interestingly enough, the emergency escape rockets that are mounted right to the ship as part of the ship could actually be used to land that craft on the moon. There's one aspect of a homestead perspective as opposed to a governmental-based NASA scientist one where, well, if we don't need it, we don't need to take it. SpaceX said, okay, let's leave this thing on the ship. Let's build it as part of the ship so that, who knows, we might need it. Those rockets could come in handy, and they do. You get into orbit, and those rockets then are used as maneuvering thrusters or can be if they need to do any one of a number of different scenarios. Now they have the resources to do that because it's built as an integral element of the ship. So let's take that that Dragon, which is launched on a Falcon 9, and let's put it up into orbit. Now let's take another newbie, and let's add uh, Robert Bigelow. Now Robert Bigelow builds space habitats, inflatable units. These are, uh, by comparison to the units that we have at the space station, these things are huge. They're open space that you can move around in. You can create partitions. You can move the partitions. You can create a lab space and then disassemble that lab space and create a new lab space right in that spot. It didn't. It didn't really uh, apply. I, I didn't quite understand it until I saw the simulation. The 
artwork for it in that you saw the little bee people yeah. inside uh-huh. this habitat. Oh, my God, that's bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, and if you go to BigelowAerospace.com, you can see the various yeah. different things that they've already done. They've got two units in orbit. That is so much bigger than the space shuttle. I just couldn't believe it. Well, just it's just airspace. Well, yeah. But, but by using a big balloon, yeah. you I get so a much... You can do a whole like, lot like more. Like being inside the balloon instead of being in the basket. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. When you look at the tin cans, they are baskets that every space, everything has its place. It yeah. has to because you don't have enough room to do anything. Right. Now, right. you could fill up a Bigelow module very easily with a lot of experiments, and then you'd have the same problem, right. everything in its place. But suppose you go a different route. Mm-hmm. Suppose you mix the two technologies. Okay, so we have our dragon, and you you add one Bigelow module to live in. The Bigelow module is far more robust than is the typical NASA than the typical ISS module. It's designed for more room. It's also designed to absorb more impacts. It's also designed with a little bit more shielding than the ISS modules. Yeah. Now, let's take our Dragon module, let's attach it to a Bigelow module. All right? Yeah. Now let's say, okay, for homesteading, let's take our covered wagon and let's bring up the supplies we're going to need for six months. We'll put all those supplies, pack them into a cylinder, and we'll mate that cylinder to the other side of the Bigelow module. Okay. Now all we have to do is add an engine that can get the ship, that assembly, to the moon which isn't all that difficult either. We have many uh, um, um, uh, SpaceX's Merlin engines could do the trick. They're vacuum rated. Um, There are a host of other uh, manufacturers that have engines that are vacuum rated. So uh, creating an engine module to do the trick. Now, But here's where it goes different. It's one thing to build these modules that can all be attached together. Mm -hmm. The composition of those modules becomes important as when you're comparing mission objectives against homestead. In a mission objective, you might collect these modules together with a a plan to go to the moon, stay six months, and then turn around and come home. With a homestead, no, we're not doing that. As a result, we're going to pack some of that fuel space, fuel weight, fuel mass, with extra supplies such as, say, seeds, a little extra water, and maybe some extra battery power, just as a facetious example. And that gives us the ability with those and some pumps, we could actually do something else, add a little extra weight, and say, let's carry some fish, some chickens, and some seeds. And bamboo. And bamboo, okay. Now we can grow stuff wherever we land. Mm -hmm. Once we establish a habitat, we can now grow stuff. We can grow construction materials. With the fish, the water, and the plants, we can create a mini ecosystem Mm -hmm. that can grow food recurrently. If we add, say, a worm bed and a compost barrel, we can now compost our waste products and recycle them. Mm -hmm. If we choose our plants carefully and add some swamp plants, now we can recycle our water. We add a small 0.5 micron uh, ceramic water filter and... At the very end of the whole water recycling thing, we can have a small filter that gives us drinking water. Okay. These Oops. are not high-tech solutions, any one of them. In fact, quite the opposite. These are low-tech, homesteading solutions. But here's the biggest, single most different, is these pieces encourage the people that go to solve problems as they go. Right. Not to go with the scenarios the okay. scientists at NASA came up with. And if you run into this, you'll solve it this way. Right. They can't do it that way because either situations are always different. I don't know that, well, but we don't know. We cannot test how plants will grow in one-sixth gravity. We don't know that. That's unanswerable on Earth yeah. or in Earth orbit. You can't do it. Well, it always surprised me of Gilligan's Island. You know, they always came up with... Uh, other things in order to build other things. Yeah. Like the bicycle. It's like, okay, oh, yeah. how did they get the rubber <laughs> or the chain to go on that thing? That way they could do it. It just, it was crazy. Uh-huh. Um, 
And actually, their chain was nothing more than vines. Yeah. I mean, it probably broke every third day and you made a new one. Exactly. And, and of course, these are things we didn't see. But, see, that's part of the problem that we face with with governmental programs and NASA. They're they're so used to having industrial-scale mechanical devices that are designed to last for 20 years that nobody thinks about, well, this idea of expendability has a certain amount of value. Mm-hmm. If you have a um, a resource that is regenerative, in other words, you've got plant byproduct that you can work with. Which is why I loved your idea about bamboo. Exactly. Okay. If you grow bamboo in a grow box on the moon and you've got 15 foot of growth space, you know, you can grow bamboo to that length. You can cut it. You cure it. Now you've got a construction material. Yeah. You keep digging. You can you can take that construction material because you're not looking at a lot of load-bearing weight. And bamboo in and of itself is strong enough. But there are questions to be answered. In the yeah, one-sixth gravity of the moon, uh-huh. will the bamboo retain its strength as it grows? Yeah. It has less resistance. Now you've got evolutionary factors to look at as we go there. And here's a big question that I have not seen anybody answer. Let's say you start a homestead on the moon. And this this is an interesting thought to leave with people. We take our plants, we take our fish, we take our worms, we take whatever we take up there, and we we build this homestead. Here's a consequence for people to think about. What happens on the second, third, and fourth generations when we start seeing changes in the way that these organisms are developing because of the reduced gravity of the moon? Mm. We're keeping the habitat, the air pressure, everything's the same, even if we achieve one full atmospheric pressure. Now we're getting the air concentrations just right. What's going to happen to each of these organisms when they don't have to worry about the gravity? Mm. Is the bamboo going to be as strong? Mm. Are the fish going to be as strong and as meaty because they don't have to work as hard to swim? Okay. Are the chickens going to be as meaty because they don't have to carry as much weight? Yeah. Okay. So we have a lot of things. Are they going to be as active or more active? They can jump now instead of walk. In the whole idea of the eggs, uh, how are they going to, you know, uh, how is this reduced gravity going to affect the eggs? There's a lot of lot of factors that we don't know. Absolutely. And again, just like going to uh, the West, we didn't know what animals were there. We didn't know what the real dangers were. We knew they were dangerous. Right. Yeah, that was a given. Wilderness means grizzlies. You had the bobcats. Wilderness means wilderness. Wilderness. And, and so that's the same thing. We know that there's there's going to be things there that we don't know about. I think there you point out probably the single greatest challenge facing any effort to go in homestead space for any reason, and that is entering the wilderness kills people. It really does. Uh, over half of the people that started out in the land rush of the late 1800s died before they got to where they were going. Right. So there's always that up at that chance. The wagon trains themselves that took people to the West Coast had a similar attrition rate. Almost half of those mm-hmm. who set out died before they got to their destination. And we have to accept, if we're going to be a spacefaring civilization, we have to accept that in the wilderness phase, in this in this homesteading mm-hmm. phase, in this getting out there, this frontier stage, we're going to lose half the people we send. And they need to know that. That's daunting. But uh, before we get into, because uh, we have about six minutes left, I really wanted to talk about the economic situation. Why should Americans be backing this now? Because without a new frontier, the level of innovation is going to decline. We're already seeing that the technologies that we face, earthbound technologies are bound by our atmosphere, mm-hmm. by our our air construction, what makes up the air we live in, by the resources that we have around us. We're already seeing declines and price increases in rare earth metals coming from China and other sources. Mm. We're seeing reductions in our petroleum products and and crude oil reserves. We're seeing reductions in water use, uh, not water use, but water availability because we're not recycling it well. We're looking at increases in costs of fuel, water, food, all because 
we're not managing these things. We're still working on the assumption of a consumer society. Mm. Even if we solve these problems, we will still hit a point based on complexity theory of any complex system that suggests that once a system reaches a critical mass point, something mm. has to happen. Right. Communism reaches a critical mass point very quickly from where this, the, the, the controlling organization hits critical mass and can no longer, because of the weight of the bureaucracy, cannot manage the resources well enough to distribute them effectively. Corruption, graft, oh. uh, resistance, all get in the way of that working well. well so it has to evolve. That's kind of where Americans are. The corruption is, is so high. The Corruption is, so is, at a, is at a maximum. The movement of resources amongst the various community groups is hitting resistance. Um, FEMA, gotcha. FEMA was talking yesterday about how they're being more proactive to distribute resources into potential disaster areas. But this could become a problem. Uh, in, in the near future is as the potential for disasters increase. We are experiencing climate change that suggests that these are going to increase in frequency rather than decrease because of what's happening. Mm -hmm. The earth is changing and we are not changing with it. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. When you it. talk about economics, there is only there is one way and only one way that our history has shown that economics can grow, and that is we need a new frontier. Right. And that frontier is space. When we put people on the moon, they will generate new products. They will generate new strains of, of plants and animals that will generate new forms of food that are going to be exotic. They're going to generate new places to visit. They're going to generate um, new ideas, new ways of doing things that will lift us out of the potential for economic growth. And the potential for jobs the WPA program will look like a backyard project compared to what happens once uh, we have a, a large enough number of people on the moon to begin hosting their businesses that will. And, and, and here's just real well, briefly. What that yeah, yeah. Here's real briefly how Homestead will work to create an economic benefit in, in, in orbit. When, when the homesteads start, they're going to be focused on survival. But within a year, those homesteads will start producing more food, air, and water than they can use. They'll be shipping it off for sale to the ISS first and then over to the Bigelow stations that will be up there. The Russians have announced a new station. China has announced a new station. These, these space stations are going to have to be supplied from somewhere. And who better than Americans to build the farms on the moon to serve these burgeoning businesses that are going to be growing in orbit. Who better than the Americans to be arrogant enough to say, <laughs> we can do this just because we damn well believe we can. And Americans can lead the way. We didn't start the space race, but by gum, we made it happen. Yeah. I have a, a, a listener who wants to know how in the world you got so enamored with space that you came up with all these things. <laughs> uh, actually, it's not so much I became enamored with space as much as I got fed up. The government uh, is inept. NASA has become so overconfident with science that They've lost the sense of arrogance that we can solve the problems and gone into this safe room mode of thinking. Mm -hmm. We must bring them back at all costs. We must have triple and quadruple redundancies to make sure these ships work. The costs of launches are so great. It's time that we go back and, and find the joy of the frontier, the rush of discovering something new. That's awesome, Don. I want to everybody know where to find you. Um, you have your own website. That's DonaldJocks.com. Also, on the chat, I included your uh, your Facebook page. Cool. That way, a lot of what Don talks about is on his website. Uh, where can they find your space stuff on there? 
Uh, there is a link right on the uh, on the front page that, that will take you to most of my interest areas: uh, space, artificial intelligence, uh, writing. Uh, I have several books out now and available. And that's through azpublishingservices.com. You can get well, his books. You can get my books his, there. Book. We're also on Amazon. Uh, yep. And uh, just about anywhere else you want to buy. Yeah. Yeah. And the pamphlet is out where I'm actually writing a larger book that's due to be released uh, this fall that will go into detail on how we can homestead the moon in 12 straight steps. Awesome. Looking forward to that. And with that, we're going to say goodbye. Have a great afternoon. Great weekend. Hey, Labor Day. Great Labor Day. Uh, This is KWOD Radio signing off for the day. Have a great one.